0: Morning. Good, morning. Good morning, you'll turn to Mark 9, that's where we'll be this morning. Okay, um, we're going to be talking about spiritual bondage today, so let me offer a uh, maybe a, a rubric or a way of thinking about it, uh, very, very simply, because there's a lot of different expressions uh, of bondage. Um, different problems tend to require different solutions. At least it appears that way at, at, uh, on close inspection. So if a car, uh, if your car needs new oil and brakes, there's tools for that, there's techniques for that. Either you know how to do it or you don't know how to do it. You know who you are. Um, but there's a sense of, not everybody can just change the oil and brakes on a car. There's a technique and tools. It has to be understood. It's its own sort of trade. Um, or you can just pay somebody to do it. So you could know and understand that, uh, but at the end of the day, you could just give your credit card to Jiffy Lube, right? <laughs> Same thing is the case in other areas of life. If you were in love and you wanted to do a really fancy dinner for somebody, invite them over, clean your house. That might be an all-day event, require a lot of effort. To cook a fancy meal, you need to know how to cook really well, otherwise it's not fancy. Uh, And not everybody can do that. uh, I can't do that. It impresses me when people understand how to cook so well. Um, Or you could just pay somebody to do it. So it's another area where you go, the the problem, the solution to the problem is actually very specific, very careful, tailored. People who can do breaks in oil can't necessarily cook fancy meals. If you are, you're a renaissance man. (laughs) You should walk out of church today with a swagger. Um, What I'm saying is, though, like at one level, these things, these problem sets and the solution sets are very distinct. Um, But you could also just pay to have it done. You could solve it with money. And today, as we we come in, we're going to look at a child who's possessed by a demon That's a problem set. It's a problem set uh, in a broad umbrella of what I would call spiritual bondage. So whether it's, you know, uh, depression, addiction, possession, torment, confusion, like identity confusion in all of its various ways, the whole realm of life, the torment of the inner voice, okay? This morning, I wanna say they're different they're particular; they're their own problem sets with their own solution. Uh, but what we're going to read, we're going to see about the Lord is He's preeminent over all of them. Like, or Jesus can do it. Okay, it was said, "Who the Lord sets free, He is free indeed." So, in speaking generally today, I'm not oversimplifying an issue, but we're dutifully acknowledging who is over everything. That's that's what's going to happen this morning in Mark, where we've framed the ministry of Jesus Christ under this word preeminent. Uh, We're going through various uh, episodes of his ministry, and in those episodes, we're looking at his unrivaled superiority. Jesus has unrivaled superiority to every aspect of our life. And following Jesus often depends upon us over understanding his preeminence. Over the weeks that we're going to be talking about the preeminence of Jesus, my hope is, is that we're confronted, we're consciously confronted by areas in our own lives where we don't really think he is preeminent. That would be a, a win coming out of this series is that we, you, us collectively, might find like, I, I, don't, I don't stress in my faith about that, but in this dimension of my life, I don't believe he's in front. I don't believe he's above. I don't believe he's the unrivaled king of kings. And that's a problem. Why do the disciples need to see it in so many different ways? We need to, it's not enough to just say he's preeminent. That's, that's just it's too big of an idea for us to hold on to for Monday. We need to see it in lots of different ways. So today we're going to look at it in the area of of spiritual bondage or the inner voice. We're coming in Mark 9. Mark 9 is fairly well along in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So this isn't day one. This is towards the back half. The disciples have been gathered. They've been sent out two by two. They've returned, which means they've healed and they've cast out demons. By this point, John the Baptist is dead. The 5,000 have been fed. The 4,000 have been fed. Jesus has walked on water. And we're pretty far in. At this point in the story, the disciples have confessed to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is now plainly speaking to them about his death and resurrection, no longer in parables. He's straight talk. And just prior to the story, Jesus is going to take three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up onto the mountain for the transfiguration, where they will behold the Lord in his glory and in his splendor with the Father. That's where we are in the story. In fact, when we pick up here in the 14th verse, the story is being told, and incidentally, Mark is generally considered uh, the gospel of Jesus according to Peter. It's sort of the ministry of Jesus through Peter's eyes. The story is going to actually tell almost as though it was witnessed by one of the three disciples, coming down out of the mountain with Jesus. So we're picking up literally as Jesus and Peter, James, and John are descending from the transfiguration and coming back to normal. That's where we're going to be here in verse 14. I'll read 14 through 18 here. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And they asked him, uh, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Stop there. Jesus comes out of the mountain. He comes down. It reminds me of Moses coming down from the mountain. This up with God, where everything is as it should be, and then coming down into this confused commotion. That's what he sees here, is the disciples disputing. There's Jewish scribes that are just mentioned in the argument. There's a crowd. There's there's a mess at the base of the mountain. There's a mess of faith at the base of the mountain. And Jesus comes into it. When they see them, you almost the impression you get is they're like, oh, just the man we're looking for. There you are. Speaking of the devil, I don't know if you can say that. Thank God you're here, Jesus. And then the problem, Jesus says, what's the problem? It sounds like he's actually saying it to the disciples. What are you doing arguing with them? So he comes, you you can imagine, maybe in his mind going, I can't leave for a day before this, we just find ourselves in a mess. What are you arguing about? And it's the father of the son who emerges from the crowd. Now, the description of the child, you might you might uh, have this thought in your head, like it sounds like epilepsy. I can't imagine. Nobody has thought that in here. In Matthew, in fact, the word seizures is used. The literal word for that is moonstruck. That was the ancient phrase for a seizure. That's literally what is the word used in Matthew. The point, I'm, I want to make just ahead of time, is what we're observing here is not a primitive diagnosis of a medical condition. Now, that certainly existed, right? In a pre-scientific community, I'm sure there, were, uh, there might have been an, a tendency to over-spiritualize medical conditions, okay? So I'm not saying that that didn't happen. I'm saying in this particular story, this is a demon. And this demon manifests, it tortures the child, through something that manifests itself like epilepsy. But I just don't want us to say, well, this really is a physical problem. As the story develops, it's clear it's a demon. It tortures the child through violent epilepsy. And as a brief aside, I'll say it and we'll leave it is, you know, our, if their culture is a little bit too primitive in the sense that they might assume that some physical maladies are, in fact, spiritual maladies. I'd say we probably live on the opposite side of that spectrum, where we probably consider that there are, are we probably consider many spiritual maladies physical maladies. So we, let's just acknowledge the bias, and we can keep going. Verse eighteen is interesting. My son is possessed, and your disciples tried and they failed. That's the bottom line there. And there's commotion because of it. I wonder if the commotion is uh, related to if the disciples fail, if disciples can't, can Jesus even do it? There's a principle uh, at this period of time with disciples, which is the messenger of the man is as the man himself. That would be the saying. The messenger of the man is as the man himself. Your messengers or the disciples ought to be able to do the things that the, the teacher or the rabbi or the master has mastered. That's the point of being a disciple. That is, in, in fact, part of the reason why Jesus does give them power when he sends them out two by two to heal in his name. Is because the messenger of the man is as the man himself. So what we have here, and you can just imagine why the commotion might have, uh, dust, the dust-up might have happened here, is you have messengers who can't do this. Does this mean Jesus can't do this? Why are the scribes wrapped up in this? Verse 19 is, is how Jesus replies to the whole situation. And it's an important verse, so we'll take time. This is what he says when he sort of sees the mess of things. Here's the father. He's, he says this, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, we don't know enough at present to know exactly why Jesus says what he says, but I will say this. This tells us that the problem is a faith problem. Like, we should say maybe we can't explain everything at this point because the story can be, this is a not-so-easy-healing story. So maybe we can't answer every question at present, but what we can say is a major clue has just dropped into the lap of the reader, into the ears and minds, is what the problem in this crowd, the problem with the disciples, it sounds to me, by the way, that this faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? This is being said to the disciples over the heads of the crowd. Almost every scholar believes that, that the disciples are the chief recipients of this. (laughs) I mean, Jesus is going to be crucified months from now. How do you not understand these things? I can just see Jesus coming out of the Transfiguration, back down to the real world of faithlessness. Faithless generation. This is a faith problem. We'll say about we'll get to that in a bit here. Let me read uh, 20. Uh, We'll just read 20 for a second here. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth in 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, childhood. We should remark about the this, this spirit realm for a second. I have often wondered to myself, um, I, I certainly don't fault somebody for not believing in Jesus Christ in, in the way that I do. I mean, that, that's not what amazes me. What does surprise me is how someone could be entirely atheistic about the spirit world when we face the obvious presence of wickedness and evil in this world. To me, the in-your-face evil that we see is the greatest apologetic for the spirit realm. The animal kingdom does not treat itself like we treat one another. And we are so beautifully made. I mean, we each... Have to behold how amazing God has made us inside to do wonderful things, and yet we obliterate one another. Like in close, intimate ways, but in broad, global ways. The obvious presence of evil is, in my mind, the greatest apologetic for stare closer at the spirit world. Because it's real. And I want us to observe this, and I don't want to give, I don't want to give undue attention to, to Satan and the enemy, but I do want us to observe something here. <sighs> Jesus asked this question, how long? When Jesus approaches the child, the demon, uh, it's almost as though so the demon makes one great final effort to destroy the child. That's the picture here. In fact, he's gonna, when he's cast out, he's going to do the same thing. The demon throws the child into a fit, and Jesus asked this question, like, how long? And the father's answer, the impression, I think the is supposed to get, it's been a while. The interesting thing is, all through the story, this boy is a child. The father says, it's been here since he was a child. So I don't know exactly, that doesn't make, it makes it hard to measure. I think the impression is, it's been here since he was little. It wasn't yesterday. It's been here since he was little. I think the impression is, This possession is deep and entrenched bondage. And I want to talk about how, just pause here to say, we should observe the way evil preys on children. This is an example, but this is an example of, I would say, a broad strategy of the enemy. The enemy preys on the vulnerable. And children are vulnerable. If the enemy can get a foothold in a child, if you can adjust a child's life by two degrees, by the time they're 60, they're almost off the cliff. Just give it time. We say these things in a clinical way all the time. We say things like, well, a child has pretty much become who they are by the time they're entering adolescence if we know that, don't you think the enemy knows that? If, if we say things like, well, you gotta be really careful, early childhood development is where it's all at. If we know that, don't you think the enemy knows that? This is not rocket science. I wanna think broadly about the sort of the torment of the inner voice and I'm speaking into a room, I know many, many here have dealt with just the difficulty of life. But if you follow it in your own mind, it starts in your childhood. Because you were vulnerable. Your own confusion about identity, who you are, what you were supposed to be, the own roots of addiction, just... For most of us, I'd say for most of us who struggle this way, and I put myself in this category, I can drag, I can go all the way back, kindergarten. I know I, being in the woods, looking at the magazines that the big boys left back there, right, the beginning. Little things in my life, like a two by four cracking. I'm never going to be the same. Never going to be, because we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable. There's a lot of Christians in the world who have a ton of self-hatred in their 30s and 40s because they're like, why can't I fix myself? In fact, they should have a compassionate, almost a pitiable sense of, like Jesus here, how long has this been happening? Such a compassionate word from, how long has this been happening? And here's the thing about a child is, youth feels immortal, doesn't it? So these great wounds are done to youth, but because they're so vulnerable, to be vulnerable is both to not know when things are happening to you, not know how to deal with the things that are happening to you, may not even understand what happened to you. And so what I want to see is the way that Satan uses the very same things that we know to deform our development in this life. The enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy the pr- obvious presence of this evil should make us know the spirits the spirit world is real and here it is it's right here in front of us and i'm here to say to you to say whatever the exact particular manifestation of of the the war of the enemy when you were forming, I'm here to say God cares about you and he is preeminent over it. Like, I know there's fancy science we could talk about why you're this way, why, like, everything's different, everything's, but I am here to say when the Lord steps into the crowd, it's as good as done. And this demon knows it. He knows it. And I want to say to someone, in in youth, our ignorance, we're just not a naivety, we say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. We say that all the way into our 20s. I'm fine, no big deal, I'm fine, I got through it. We sort of almost have a proudness of, you know, I don't have any regrets in life, I'm fine, I'm fine. Meanwhile, we're bleeding. We have this mortal wound of our identity. It's like bleeding out, and it's hurting people. It's worth noting here that the child is actually moonstruck when the demon is hurling him into the fire. You should know, those of you who... The many of us here who have, that there's people who love you who have been dragging you out of the fire because of what the enemy has done to you. And you're not even aware of it because you're still young or because you haven't come to terms. This demon knows what's about to happen. Jesus is preeminent. This childhood trauma that would destroy this kid, it grabs the Lord's heart, and he's going to heal him. Let me keep reading. I want to read 22 through 27. It says, Uh, from childhood is what the father says at the end of 21. It is often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that the most of them said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. You hear that theme of belief show back up? The Father says, if you can. To which Jesus it's almost a guffaw. In fact, in the ESV, it's a verbal question with an exclamation point. <laughs> it should have a question mark. If you can, that's how it should sound. Like, what? Do you realize what you just said? And what's interesting about this moment here, right? If you can, it's it's Jesus turns the whole table around on the issue. What he says to them implies, it's not whether I can that matters, it's whether you believe I can that matters. That's what he says here. It's your faith that matters. Nothing is impossible with God, but your faith is a relevant factor into whether God is going to act or not. Why would God move marvelously in a faithless setting? Of what gain would it be? The faithless would just go on being faithless. They'd say things like, it's better to be lucky than good. Why would God move? Ask yourself this. Why in the world would he act and move in a faithless setting? God can. But why if no faith is a prerequisite? in many cases, for the Lord to move. Last week we saw it. We saw it, the healing of the paralytic. Right? They lowered him down through the hole. What did Jesus do? Jesus, seeing their faith, said. We saw it last week. It's just a few chapters earlier in Mark. This is Mark 6. Jesus is in his hometown. His hometown rejects him. They have no time for him. He says, see this, a prophet is not accepted in his hometown. And then we get this passage. And he could do no mighty works there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Why in the world would the Lord squander his mercy on people who are not looking for it? Ironically, that's the gospel. Hear the voice, turn and see. can he heal The question is probably hiding in the crowd. This is what I think the question is is if the disciples couldn't do it, can Jesus do it? That's what I think is traveling in this story. I guess hey, they you can imagine Imagine their confidence. They had been casting out demons left and right when they were sent out two by two. I can imagine sort of the the posture they had when they laid hands on this boy, when they approached this boy, and then they fail. That is a a moment I'd like to stand and watch. What did they do? What did they look? What did their reaction to not having been able to do it affect the rest of the crowd. I imagine at this point, I can just imagine how the dust up in the dispute and the arguing and how the scribes, aha, aha, they're doing all these things, finger pointing. I can just see Jesus like coming out of the mountain into this crowd of people wondering, well, if I couldn't do it, can he do it? And he flips it. Do you believe I can do it? This is the order of things. This is not a name and claimant series. This is not a, hey, if you believe it, it'll happen. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not saying there's causation here. I'm saying the Lord is establishing the order of things. If the Lord, if, why would the Lord work in an environment where faith is not looking? And then the man gives uh, the most paradoxical prayer that we all understand. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? This is one of these things where we should be confused by it, but we've all prayed it. We all sort of, to be so linguistically weird, and yet we all go, yep. And I should, we should remark, it's enough, by the way. It's enough that he cries out this way. I mean, maybe it's something more like this, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief is something like, Lord, I do believe, but it's hard. Lord, I do believe, but I'm still confused. Lord, I believe, but your timing is so difficult in my heart. Lord, I don't know, I believe you do it, I just don't know if I'm ready to accept the way you do it as good news. Something like that. Haven't we all prayed that? Like, if I put it in your hands, my nervous Lord, I do believe you'll do something, I'm but I don't want to give it to you because I fear what you might actually do with it. That's that prayer. And you know what? It's good enough. He heals the child. It's good enough. Like, if you're thinking, I'm not that faithful. I'm nervous when I pray. I'm fearful about putting it in the hands of God. I just want you to know, in this story, it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. I'm saying this for parents. Right? Fathers of children, mothers of children, of loved ones where they don't even see how they're hurting and they're not around when they're being pulled out of the spiritual fire like they're not even registering and you're crying out. That's what this this is for that. It's enough for the Lord All right, a few hours later, we'll read 28 and 29. Well, not in a few hours, but you know what I mean. In the reading, it's a few hours later, I suppose. Uh, It says, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer story, if you rush through this story, you end going, what? The disciples, what went wrong? They get Jesus alone, away from the crowd. Why did we fail Jesus? You can imagine their inner rationale. Lord, you gave us power. You told us to do these things. We just did what you told us to do. And it didn't work. And I think in that, I think in that rationale, I I want to, I probably think that is the basic logical flow, is Lord, you gave us power. Uh, You told us to do this, and we did it. Why didn't it work? I think that, I don't think, I'm just a big stretch here. I think if, we could scrutinize where things go wrong. It's with the first idea. Lord, you gave us power. I wonder if this is a bit of an ego thing. You know, the, I imagine the first time when the Lord sent him out two by two, the first time you know, he said, hey, I'm giving you power to heal and to cast out demons. I imagine the first time it happened, they probably could hardly sleep that night. You know, like, I can't believe it. The guy had leprosy. And then he didn't. Praise Jesus. But I imagine, like, a week later, I can see, as I have in my own life with the things God's given me, the gifts and talents and the way He's made me, I could grow accustomed to thinking it actually is me. Like, He gave me power. rather than what it really ever always was. I wonder if they had grown accustomed to, I lay my hands on people and I heal people. I'm a disciple, I'm one of the 12. We have power. I think, I think that is what's happening here. I think they've grown comfortable with the power and the ability that was entrusted with them just enough to f- put faith aside a little bit so that as soon as they hit a roadblock where things don't happen they hit crisis but what why isn't it working i wonder if in that crisis there was this quietness if i we can't heal can he We were doing what he did. If we can't heal, can he? Why didn't the disciples pray? Have you thought about asking that? Like here's this failed moment. Why didn't they? I can almost guarantee you that if you went home today and your neighbor rang your doorbell and brought to you a child possessed by a demon who was throwing them into fits and said, hey, you're a follower of Jesus. Can you heal him? I would put money down that the first thing you would do is pray. Or throw up in the corner. It's kind of one of those two. None of us are going to be like, "Ah, right, bring them on in," you know. Let me stretch out. I'm going to do. I'm going to do the method, right? None of us are going to do that. You're you're going to be like, "Dear Lord, dear Lord, I, you have brought this to my feet," and you're going to pray, and you're probably going to say small things about yourself. You're going to probably be really careful to give a lot of disclaimers, like, "Hey, listen." Uh, this is not me, this is the Lord. You're right, you're almost preparing them for the fail. Just psychologically. This may or may not happen, but this is just, uh, you need to understand how it is. I'm really a nobody. It's the spirit of God working in me. I'm just saying, if you didn't have in your mind the power of God, you would. the first thing you would have done is pray. They have the power of God and they don't. That tells you, the whole story is about faith to me the whole story is for the disciples the whole story is about faith if i can't do it well then he can't do it i think that's that seed is planted maybe i can't do it here's the story Maybe you can't do it, but he can do whatever he wants. You hear that? Mom and dad, maybe you can't do it. Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. And that should be our demeanor. That should have always be our demeanor. I don't know what God's going to do. This is a rival for the Christian Christian. I don't know what God's going to do, but I don't have a seed of doubt that he can. And I don't have a seed of doubt that he doesn't see us and that he doesn't have compassion and that he doesn't see how long this has been tormenting you. I don't have, a, this is, I'm just saying, the arrival point of the Christian. I don't have an ounce of doubt left in my life, this is where we want to be, that God sees, cares, knows, and that I can't do it, but he can do whatever he wants to do. That is, demeanor prays well all the time. That demeanor knows how to pray because its disposition is already prayerful. That's how it should be. That's how I'm convinced the the disciples should have been and weren't when this whole story kicked off. They thought they could and then they couldn't and then they panicked. People saw it. Doubt arose. What's going on? Jesus says, ah, how long do I have to put up with this? How long can your immaturity? I want to say this, right? Jesus is saying this to the disciples. I want to say this to the mature among us. To the mature believer, our behavior is supposed to reinforce people's faith towards Jesus, not confuse them. Christians, when we're not good Christians, we're not zero, we're negative. We breed confusion to the crowd who's bringing real problems God's way. I can't do it, but he can. We have to be small enough, just small enough to hold the grandeur of Jesus Christ. That's it. Get yourself small enough so that the grandeur of Christ is on you. All right, one last little thought to close, I feel like, because... This, this is a, a thing that could happen. Is Someone here today could be like, got it. So if I want this healing in my life, I need to pray. Like you could walk away from this with that lesson learned. Okay, like, so if I need prayer, if I need the thing, then just pray, right? No, <laughs> that's the wrong way to think here, okay? You, what you've done is you took the same problem the disciples had and you just moved it upstream a little bit they laid on hands and said magic words and it didn't work and they panicked. Why do you think that saying magic prayers are gonna do the thing? It's not a magic. It's not an incantation. It's not a ritual. It's not a method. The point is not the prayer. The point is that your inability does not suggest his inability. That's the point. That's the hope for the church, is that my inability would not get in the way of my belief in his great ability. But I would, in fact, that the peace of Jesus Christ that would be in my life and in our lives would be the peace where we can lay something down at his feet and walk away knowing that he's more than able. And that whatever he sets free is free indeed, forever. Like, that God is entirely preeminent over the host of problems you would bring. The goal is not to get yourself fixed. It's not to solve the problem. The goal is, I don't understand. I can't fix myself. He can. I'll lay it at him and I'll walk away. And there's some old Christians in this room who started off really rough and can testify. They can testify to the things Jesus does, sometimes very slowly over great time. God does wonderful things for people who can lay it at his feet. Here's a prayer. That the church would not lay low in powerlessness because he is able. That we would not lay low in the fact that our inability, that our inability would not inhibit us from being helpful to the world. But rather we'd say, our inability has nothing to do with it. He's able. Maybe I can't, but he can. This this opportunity to pray for people, this opportunity to deliver things to the feet of God who cares and knows and is compassionate. There's a word, the very final word of the story. Some of your Bibles might have prayer and fasting. Does anybody have that? Okay, Some Bibles have that tradition. Truth is, most of the manuscripts we have have prayer and fasting at the end. So the majority of manuscripts have it. It probably was not originally there for lots of good reasons that we don't need to go into. But probably originally it was just prayer and it has since been added in fasting. I think one of the reasons that it was added um, was because there was a reality. When Jesus was with his disciples, they did not fast (laughs) because he was with them. Uh, but a day will come when he's no longer with us and we will fast. And it was probably early on in the life of the church that it was added like, this is also what we need to do. And I would say this, I just want to say that is, in the, in maybe the dispute on what gets the last word there, there's a healthy word for, well, Jesus, is, Jesus has ascended. He's given us his spirit. And how do... We pray and we fast before the Lord because he's able. He's able. Will you bow your heads with me? I want to take some time to pray. I want to begin uh, with by lifting up those in the room who Deal in some form or fashion with the torment of the inner voice, whether it's addiction, bondage, confusion. Father, we lift up, we lift ourselves up to you as, in many ways, victims of the enemy. We pray that you see us, and particularly for people who are just coming into themselves, Lord. They, we know, even for older people here, it, we're our own biggest mysteries. I pray today that God might take away self-hatred and at least replace it with pity, divine pity. God has seen the way the wires were crossed, the way the identity was shattered. God sees these things. He inquires about them. How long? And Lord, For many church, people here in the church who don't feel that particularly empowered to walk around healing, we, we welcome it. We welcome it, Lord, if your spirit wants to come on us. But what we owe you is the willingness to come back to you as one fully able. That is what all of us can do. Lord, may we may we pray for you pray to you as the one who's preeminent may we pray for one another when we see when we see other lives in our fellowship and our families and our circles being thrown into the fire by the enemy or being drugged back out Lord may our first reaction not be judgmentalism may it be a prayer to you may, may smoke rise to you Lord. We ask this father in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen.